5: The Tom Sumner program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July, 2021. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
4: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second Hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner program has promised uh, earlier in the show my guest this hour spent time in Hollywood working on film sets and uh, uh, worked as a uh, as a filmmaker and has become uh, an award-winning author of the book the um, I think it's the legacy letters I think I got that right but We'll find out for sure from my guest Carew Pepperitz, who joins me by phone. Hi, Carew, Welcome to the show. Tom. Good morning. It's great to be on it. Did I get that right? Is it Letters of Legacy or the Legacy Letters? No. Yeah. The Legacy Letters. Yeah, I'm I'm terrible with names and titles. So if I if I screw up either, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, you got it, Tom. Not a problem. But Carew I. I even though I know you've been promoting this, uh, this book, but um, I, I have to ask, as somebody who has worked on film crews and been involved in filmmaking in Hollywood, what was your initial reaction when you heard the news of what happened on the set of the, of the film uh, being made called Rust with actor uh, Alec Baldwin?
1: Well, it was interesting because uh, my wife uh, told me about it um, just shortly after it happened, and I turned to her and I said, "I bet you I know what happened. I bet it was a union non-union problem, where um, where the crew went south. And what I mean by that is, um, there's situations where you just don't have a really great production. There's it starts out it's a top-down issue, and and for whatever reason happen, happened. I've I've been on these these." For, for everyone that knows them they're called film productions or shoots which is sort of bad nomenclature at this point in the time so if i refer to a shoot please understand that it means a film shoot um and um so i looked it up and sure as heck i saw that it is exactly what i thought and so that's nothing has changed um in that world especially of the the low production films
5: Well, my first thought, and and of course there's an ongoing investigation and we're hearing new information every day um, Mm -hmm. about who knew what and when and who did what and when and uh, and all of that. But the first thing that occurred to me was, what is a real gun and real ammunition doing anywhere near a Hollywood make-believe scene?
1: Well, it sh- it it shouldn't be, and uh, at all, at ever, ever, no, you know, never should you have ammunition like that on a set, uh, live ammunition, and uh, that, that's just like the the, the biggest no no of all time. So that's what's going to be found out. But I think I, Dom, I think what would what would help your listeners is I can. Um, I'd like them to sort of understand where I'm coming from and my background to be able to understand what happens on a film crew when it breaks down because it's a systemic breakdown that led to this situation happening.
5: Well, let, so, me, let me ask yeah, one more please. thing before, you, yeah, before you get into that, Karu. Um, it, we keep hearing that it, the, uh, the, the confirmation of uh, the, the gun being safe was barked out to Alec Baldwin, cold gun. And, mm. and that's supposed to mean that it doesn't have live ammunition in it. Is there ever, or, or what would be the conditions that would call, call for saying hot gun? I mean, is there ever a time when a gun with live ammunition might be used in filming a scene?
1: None to my knowledge. I actually had to call up several buddies of mine who are still working in the industry, and uh, you know, they've, and, and they've worked on sets with a lot of guns, with armors and things like that. I had a good buddy of mine who worked on the Patriots, so there was a ton of guns on that. And that's, you know, I, I'm, I am just not aware of that situation. Uh, I don't even, I, I have not worked on sets with guns, so I can't speak to that directly. But those, the, the, the cold gun situations, man, it's been checked over by a licensed armor, a union-licensed armor, and it's not only been checked over once, but it's been checked over by the AD, and then it's handed off to the actor, and the actor has to check it. So there's, there's three stage and a lot of these um, uh, uh, protocols, um, especially this one, two, three sort of protocol, really came into place because of the brandon lee shooting back in the i think it was the the 80s or early 90s i can't remember right now
5: well then then go ahead carew with uh you wanted to get into um the the structure of a crew and and how that that organizational structure might prevent or lead to accidents
1: absolutely So, Tom, I've worked on pretty much every type of shoot. I have a low-budget, big-budget, no-budget features, non-union, union, union, film TV commercials, music videos, pilots, movie of the week. I've worked um, primarily in the art department um, on a number of positions, but in the union features, I worked as a set dresser, which basically dresses out the sets, or what they used to call swing gang in the old days, which is um, dressing up sets, preparing them for the actors to come on, and then afterwards taking all the set dressing off. And the the biggest distinction that people, if they don't know, props means anything that an actor touches. So this that's the main distinction between what we do. Pretty much everything you see on a set is something that I would have picked up, brought in, set up, and got ready. Um, because of the physical labor involved in what we did, I always stress to my crews to be safe, especially hurting one's back because of all the lifting we did um and safety was always the main working condition on the set and you knew when you were on a production that valued money over safety so but i really want people to understand that what happened to helena hutchins is the result of not just an accident but an attitude that you can work um you know you can work on film because it's really a it's 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 a privilege and an honor sort of work on that but they can use that meaning a the producers like, wow, this is a, you should be privileged to work on this film. You know, this is, this is an honor to work on this film. But after a while, if you've worked on films for enough years, you begin to understand the inner workings of the Hollywood film production machine and see how it can break down. And I guess lastly, my heart goes out to the Hutchins family. I mean, no, no one, no one, Ever get hurt on a film production because it's the world of make believe, and it should remain that way.
5: And and there are a lot of opportunities for things to go awry with with stunts and um, explosions and and things that we see commonly in mm-hmm. especially in action films.
1: Yes, and and when you are a pro, when you are, and generally, and when you're in a union film, and this, this is a really important distinction, is that you've sort of earned your bones um, to to be in a union film. Um, not necessarily that you have to pass any particular test, although there are, for like I said, the armor, you do have to be licensed by the state of California. Um, but you, you're working with people who work at a very, very high level of craftsmanship. I mean, they call it, in, like, for example, IOTC Local 44 that I was involved with, you're a craftsperson. And it takes years to learn the craft of filmmaking. So, what's really funny, Tom, is I went to school at the UCLA Film School and, um, and worked on directing and screenwriting and producing and the whole nine yards. And unless you make this hyper jump from the school right into uh, your film getting picked up, you pretty much have to go back out and start at the bottom. And you didn't let a soul know that you went to film school. Otherwise, you'd be scrubbing the decks. You know, they'd be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, film school guy, let's get him. So you pretty much clammed up, and you, you learned it, and you worked on all the low-budget things. and They're all non-union. And you, non-union are supposed to abide generally by the rules of union, but they don't have to. They can work you longer. They can cut corners. There can be safety things. But when you get into the union, it's um the, the level. It's like almost going to graduate school or, or you know or, or uh, trade school that really bumps you up like a journeyman situation. Boy, you're or you know you really learn the craft. You're really with the best, and they're looking out after you, um, in terms of safety, in terms of rest periods, um, um, the whole issue with uh, what we call turnarounds. For example, this is a, and it was, this was one of the issues I er, read about, uh, turnaround is the amount of time you get to sleep. So generally on a film production, the minimum time, minimum time is 12 hours a day. Um, and when you're on location, you are definitely working more than 12. You are, you are 14 to 16 hours. When you're up to get 16 hours, you, you, you need sleep. And you're working six days a week generally, if not seven if they're really pushing it. Um, what was going on here was that they were saying to whichever crew members they were, hey, we're not going to spend money on a hotel nearby. You, you need to drive the hour to the closest hotel. Um, and so now you've added two hours after a 16 hour day, um, and you have to, um, and, that, and that cuts into your sleep time. And then you have to wind down after that. I remember one time coming off a, a long shoot, it was a long week of shooting. And uh, I literally, I I knew that I had a, another six o'clock call. Um, I had four hours to sleep, and I needed to wind down. I had a beer, and I woke up four hours later, and I was sitting there with the beer in my hand.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't budged in four hours, but so that's the, that, that you know, Karu, c- 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 that's that's a uh, visual I can relate to because uh, <laughs> years ago I. Uh, I traveled quite a bit on the road as a professional mu- musician and I've, mm-hmm. I've I've witnessed someone in that stance many times <laughs> falling asleep with a beer or a cocktail oh my in God, their hand.
1: I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and it didn't spill. So there we go.
5: Oh, well then you would have passed the WC Fields <laughs> test. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs>
1: Oh uh, Yeah, so that's, um, and I think the other thing I'd like to tell your listeners about a film crew, Hollywood is very small, the film world is small, TV's maybe a little bit bigger, but uh, but at a certain point there's only one to two, maybe three degrees of separation, so everybody sort of knows everybody, when you watch the Academy Awards, you think, oh my gosh, there's all these people, and they all know each other, oh my gosh, they all know each other, they run into each other all the time, Um. And on a shoot, everyone has their own little fiefdoms I mean you've got the art department the grips, the gaffers wardrobe camera crew craft service catering and you if you know people you want to work to support them I mean if it's um, in terms of helping out other other parts of the um, the departments um, and you do your best to get to know everybody within a three to six-month shoot. Um, Carew, and you work really hard.
5: Yeah, uh, Carew, I, I I hate to cut you off there, but I have yeah. to take a short break. But I want to talk about this some more. Can you stick around for a okay. few minutes? You bet, Tom. That, my pleasure. That would be great. I'm talking with uh, Carew Papritz, uh, who is a Hollywood uh, former Hollywood filmmaker and award-winning author. And uh, we're going to talk some more with Carew uh, about film crews and sets and safety and all kinds of related stuff when we come back if you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well
3: everybody's doing a brand new dance now hi this is Mark Farner and you're
5: listening to the Tom Sumner program
4: All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.
2: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
5: And welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with former Hollywood filmmaker and award-winning author Karu Papritz, who uh, is uh, giving us uh, kind of a inside uh, uh, inside baseball look at Hollywood filmmaking and uh, film crews and what can lead to and or prevent accidents like the one we've seen in the news recently with Alec Baldwin and others on the set of uh, Rust. Uh, Carew, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. and sorry to make you sit through all that. No, Tom, it's
1: fascinating. Let's do it again. <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, yeah, I always hear something different every time. So, um, <laughs> Just before the break, Carew, you were talking about how in many ways Hollywood is a very small place and and people tend to know other people in their specific uh, field and in their um, in the roles that they play but -hmm. you were also talking about uh, some of the the compartmental uh, component to filmmaking um, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, you were talking about set dressing last segment, and of course, uh, there there are props. There, there's finding locations. There, there's casting. There, there are all these different aspects that go into making a film. Do any of these departments do they do they run independently, or is there an overarching um, role of oversight? for someone and who would that be
1: well that would be your the the overarching people would be your upm your unit production manager or your assistant director who's on on set there almost all the time your ad's as we call them um watching what's going on your producers may be coming in every now and then just to see what the production's doing depending upon how big or small it is this was a this was a small film i mean six million dollars this was a low budget film um, in Hollywood, a lot of people like to say Alec Baldwin um, has so much leverage because he's well known. But I want to say that this, this I believe, was a vanity film for him, and probably a, a tax investment write-off. I read a little about that. So they were just saying, "Hey, we're going to do it for this amount of money. Uh, we'll we'll put this in for this amount of money, and Alex, you get to be the star of the show and and do it this way." Um, but with that being said, the lower the budget, the film. Um, the, the tighter the constructions, the, the tighter the shooting schedule. And when you have a tight shooting schedule, they're always pushing you to get things done. Push, 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 because they got to get it in the can. They got to get the filming done as quickly as possible because they only have so much money to go around.
5: And there's two sides to that. Uh, you know, um, people like me who watch, you know, a lot of movies and television and, and, and see it from the outside, maybe read about it a little bit. Most of what we see are these huge budget blockbuster films. And it's Mm -hmm. hard for us to imagine cutting corners. You you know, it always seems like they're always trying to do something bigger and better. And, you know, I famously remember uh, from a movie I saw someone, uh, and it was about movie making, um, who, who was just adamant about wanting to have a crane shot. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and and so there are these things and now it would be drones but um, there there are these things that people want to bring into filmmaking as te- technology evolves so it's it, it always seems like they're getting bigger and more expensive and it's hard to imagine that corners ever get cut but how and where do they get cut and how does that process of uh, bean counting affect safety on a set
1: great question so let's start with with what variety reported I read this the other day and I was shocked because I, I knew that there were many more productions but I didn't know that as of two thousand and ten there were two hundred and sixteen scripted productions not just going into production but they were actually going to be put on television or streaming i mean streaming really has dictated how many productions are coming because you've got disney plus and hulu and amazon and you just you know you just go down the line there's a ton of them 10 years later you go from 216 to over 500 productions that is incredible around the u.s so now you only have so many experienced below below the line production crew members below the line is pretty much everybody on the crew that is not getting, That's not a director, an actor, a producer. Those are what we call above the line. They get all the big money. But for us, we're we'll call below the line. Um, when you have that many productions, you just don't have enough experienced crew members to go around, and that's when you start tapping into inexperienced crew members and producers. So they're trying to be producers even for the first time. And the more experienced the crew, generally, the more smoothly a, fr- a film production runs. Not always, but mostly. But you add a low budget, a tight shooting schedule, um, cost-cutting with crew member turnarounds and hotels, not getting paid on time, working longer than normal hours. All of this is a recipe for a production to invite accidents. And I think the producers were just following the normal playbook for a badly run, low-budget production without much oversight. It's the old money over safety issue. And when you're starting to push the amount of hours that you do Um, on on a film crew, which I'm pretty sure I know what this is like, because this this happened to me, and I can relate that story. Um, You are just inviting accidents to happen.
5: Again, I can't help but go back to the question of, um, with all the computer graphics that are available for post-production work, why, I, I understand the realism of using certain kinds of ordnance for blowing up cars and buildings and you uh-huh. know, getting those shots. Um, but why would there ever be a, a gun that's capable of firing live ammunition and live ammunition on a movie set when it can be uh, so easily um, added after the fact? for effect well, I and mean, i'm uh, talking about barrel flash and you know some of those things
1: yeah well that's probably uh, once again a, a cost issue it's probably cheaper to have those guns in an armor on the set rather than doing something in post-production um i don't know much about that adding that particular effect i mean special effects of those natures are have become much much easier to to add um but they're looking at the overall, how much money are we going to have to put in post? And again, post-production, there's three parts of the film, pre-production and post-production. Post-production is where you're doing all your editing, your sound mixing, adding in your special effects. Um, and they were probably, you know, they say, well, it was cheaper to do this than to add it in, in post um, is my guess at this point. So that's probably where that that particular um, item went south. But really, it's it's so much, Tom, um, about the top down attitude. When you, what's interesting for me when I would come onto a set, I wasn't involved in pre production or very rarely, but I could tell, and most crews will know within the first couple of weeks whether it was going to be a long hard slog or whether it was going to be really well run because because it's so um, scheduled and so smart, and everyone knows where they have to be, and you, you just know when you're on a good shoot. Another interesting, and this is sort of a funny aside, but you could always tell how good a shoot was when, by how good the catering was. <laughs> um, it, it's so funny. It's the old adage of an army travels on its stomach is directly related to a film shoot. So if a caterer and craft service, which is the, having the snacks and everything on set, um, were great. You knew for the most part that you were on a good shoot and that the producers and or producer understood how important that was to take care of the crew. I don't know about the catering. I don't know about the craft service on this, but um, when a crew starts to turn um, on, a, on a production, it's because of the attitude that the producers have toward the crew they're there to, the producers think they're there to be used used hard and uh and and we're going to get it we're going to get every nickel out of them we can and that's a real top-down attitude and that shows an incredible disrespect for the crew and again that's valuing money over safety
5: i i i want to uh Step away from from the subject of of Hollywood filmmaking for a little mm-hmm. for just a moment, Karu, because I've referred to you multiple times as an award winning author, and I want to give you a chance while I have you here to talk just a little bit about your book.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's interesting how this sort of all winds together because there was um, after a number of years I. I began to see how Hollywood sort of had these golden handcuffs on you. That you, the I mean, much like anything, the more money you earn, the more you sort of have to stay in it because now you're beholden to the thing that's that's got you. You know, by the by the proverbial short hairs. And um, the the film industry, for all the bright lights and everything, I began to sort of see a disillusionment within myself almost a spiritual disillusionment like wow is this all there is to this game and <laughs> and I saw and, and actually I remember this this fella at Universal Studios And it was again it's not the, the, the fun side of it but the other side and um, I knew him for years and I said I said Bob I said I mean do you do you regret anything you've done in, in the film industry I mean is it was it all worth it and he goes nope and I said what I mean, this guy had a million stories. I was sort of, I, I was taken aback. I was, think I was looking for it. Oh, it was the greatest life ever. And, I, and he goes, you know, I, I, I divorced twice. I never saw my kids, you know, grow up. I had all the toys. I lost all the toys. Now I'm an old man. I'm retiring. I'm going to be alone. I was like, whoa, geez. There's the writing <laughs> on the wall. So what happened was, is I ended up going on the old aboriginal walkabout i did a drive about throughout the west i was sort of trying to figure out do i want to stay in this game or do i not want to and um after about six or seven months of going back and forth getting on a production then going driving some more just on these long solitude i ended up in um southern arizona near the mexican border in a three-bar town because mostly you have to count uh how many, how many bars are in a town to see how big or small they are. And this is a small town. So and I sit next to this old cowboy and I says, Do you have any work? And he says, Yeah, I've got a fencing job. And I said, Fine, I'll take it. Now what's interesting, Tom, is I had been raised around a bit of ranching when I was growing up. My granddad had a small ranch and then worked in Wyoming when I was younger and and so I ended up working on this this pretty much by myself. Um, not a light to be seen in sight. And I had an early midlife crisis Best to have them early right so here i'm all in the, in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden this book idea pops into my head now i had written and published when i was much uh, much younger late teens early 20s and so this idea came to mind of writing the set of uh, fictional letters written by a father who would never love to see his kids and these letters would become their practical moral and spiritual guidebook um, which resulted in the legacy letters. So I started writing this book on the back of my pickup under lantern light. I mean, I'm, I'm waxing poetic, but I'm creating a picture that this is where this book started um, and with this amazing change going from Hollywood to this sort of Walden Pond, you know, cowboy lifestyle. And uh, after that fencing job, I ended up on a, a small ranch working as a foreman, and I cowboyed for the next five years. And um, as I like to say, I I would ride and ride and ride, and I'd write and write and write. So that was that was my life. And um, uh, from there, the uh, the book got published, came out, and uh, blessedly, it was it was it got a number of uh, national awards and has done wonderfully well. So it's. Uh, Really coming from Hollywood. Hollywood was the the genesis of my leaving and and bringing about
5: this book. Do people that work on Hollywood sets uh, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and and I'm you know talking about uh, everything from food service to uh, dressing sets to stunts mm-hmm. and all that, um, are they? people that are doing the work they want to be doing, are they are, are are many of them working their way through the process to try and end up in front of the camera?
1: That's a really wonderful question. Um, you, <laughs> there was years ago, the LA Times had a reporter walk down Hollywood Boulevard and ask everybody he sort of bumped into, um, how, how was your screenplay going?
5: <laughs> I love it.
1: Right? And 99 out of 100 people had a response. And, I mean, it's so funny. Every time I go back to Los Angeles and I'm, I can sit in a restaurant, if I overhear something, I'm hearing about the industry, as it's called there. Um,
5: yeah, either the so, industry or the business.
1: Oh, the business, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I've watched Robert Altman and the, and the player, and you're going to learn about the business and you know, the industry. It's, it's a great film for that, for behind the scenes. But to answer your question, um, most of them that I'm, that I'm aware of and that I have worked with um, generally aren't the actors, although some of them would like to be. Um, generally, it's more the screenwriting end of it because that's an easier way to get in. And I've known a couple of... Uh, uh, the guys that I've worked with who actually made that were able to make the jump into the uh, the uh, above the line production, so they made it. But um, yeah, most of them like like being the the behind the scenes craft people and being really good at what they do.
5: Karu, now that you've published a book and it's getting some some pretty good uh, response and reviews, and with your background and experience in Hollywood filmmaking. Um, how's your screenplay coming? <laughs> it's, <dumb.
1: laughs> it's halfway done. Is that the, re- is that the appropriate response? <laughs> yes, it's coming. It's Actually, I've been working on the screenplay for this book, so it's, I've got the structure for it and I've been working on it, but that's pretty funny. Yeah, exactly.
5: Well, I, and I didn't mean to be so facetious about it, but what I was really curious about is um, writing is the first step in making yeah. mm-hmm. a film and and i just wondered if now that you've written you know successfully if if it had occurred to you to maybe look back toward hollywood and and do some writing for film or television oh i
1: would love to i i actually still do that um and i actually help out friends of mine as a as a uh, script doctor um because of the you know understanding problems with script and building up narrative and things like that But, um, no, I would, I would love to. Oh my gosh. You know, especially with that experience. And, um, so I've not let go of that. Uh, but again, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's funny because there's this tension between Hollywood and New York, you know, it's the, the people in New York want to be in Hollywood and the people in Hollywood want the respect of New York, meaning the publishing and the, and the book writing and all that. And so I guess I've straddled the best of both worlds. And um, I guess now I'd like to be back in the Hollywood Club because now I've successfully maneuvered my way around the, the publishing world. And uh, so there's a few people who can do that. I'd like to be one of those that can, uh, can do both and do both successfully.
5: In the wake of this um... Horrible uh, accident that happened on the set of Rust. What should happen next, or are these things uh, so infrequent, these kinds of accidents, that everybody just tightens up the rules and goes on, or or are there some big changes that should be made?
1: I. That's a really good question, Tom. I think the best thing that can come about this. Uh, so they. So IOPC was and the, the film industry, they were, they were about to go on a big strike. And, and not only for money, that's almost the lesser part of this, but it was working conditions and the oversight of those working conditions. And again, some of that has come about due to COVID. Um, and the other parts were, again, this, scripts, um, the scripts, the more productions that were going into play and the more need for experienced crews. So and, and experienced producers, which are an essential part of, of putting together a film production. So I think going forward, what I would like to see is, is more oversight. That is difficult. Unions, are, unions and guilds are overworked and understaffed. Um, but to maybe have like a 911 situation, um, you know, you're able to call up a particular person. You and You say, hey, this thing is really going, so you need to get out here, you know, ASAP. Um, one thing again for your listeners to understand the film crew walked off that day the entire film crew except for Helena Hutchins that wasn't a that wasn't a red flag that was a bonfire i have never ever ever heard of that happening and talk about the most essential part of the crew it wasn't like the art department or the greens department or the cetera you know whatever That was the camera crew, the heart and soul of putting that into the can. They walked off. That production should have been shut down because there was something going on that was really, really bad. So I would like to see something where if you really do have a genuine complaint that you can talk to somebody and they can address it quickly, at least it's not this, as Russ Production is saying, there were no formal complaints. Well, gee, really? On a shoot that's happening that quickly, you have time to make a formal complaint? No, you're complaining to your upper or the union and, and trying to get something done.
5: Real quickly, you mentioned COVID. And of course, the, the pandemic had a lot of things shut down, um, mm-hmm. film production, television shows that shut down. And then, you know, we're, we're working our way back to some sort of new normal. Is is it possible that, that a lot of production companies, as they get back up and running, are a little out of practice and maybe in a little too much of a hurry to get back to normal
1: oh i think so sure and then you you combine this with one of the things i heard on this shoot was that they weren't following uh good covid you know practices on the film and i could see that because things get so so focused on on the shoot itself on just getting you know getting this getting the scene right getting this done we got to move on to the next one we got to break down this shoot, move on to the next uh, setup, the camera setup, and so on and so on. So, so there's always this go, 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 and I can see that just falling by, you know, the COVID, like, ah, all right, the mask, we're outside, we're doing, you know, a lot of this falling apart. Uh, being a bit rusty, I've had some of my guys say that, you know, it was sort of strange coming back in, and and, and, and plus, you really, really had to follow uh, the COVID rules pretty tightly, especially early on when we didn't have the vaccinations, um, so it was amazing that they were to, able to pull off what they were doing, and um, you know kudos to them, but but we it doesn't um, it, it it doesn't mask the central and again systemic problem of film crews that are just running as fast as possible to get something in the can and and cutting corners almost like any business situation and so definitely some more continuous oversight is needed or a, a way that crew members can effectively um, call somebody and say, hey, this is going on and some action takes place.
5: My guest is former Hollywood filmmaker and award-winning author of the book, The Legacy Letters, Karu Papritz. And Karu, we're, uh, we're out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future, do you have a website? Yeah, I think the easiest way is to go to com, and you
1: can see all the stuff about the book there. I, I do a lot with uh, uh, literacy with kids. I have a series called the I Love to Read series for children. I do these book signings called First Ever Book Signings where I sign books on top of volcanoes and glaciers and on uh, Whistle Stop Tours and all sorts of fun stuff. You can check that out on KarooTube or look up Karoo on YouTube and you'll see all that fun stuff. And, of course, Amazon, the big beastie, if you want to check out the book there. And uh, I'm on Facebook and all that lovely social media stuff. So just bet in Karoo, take a gander, and there's a lot of fun stuff that I put out
5: all the time. Well, Karoo, thanks. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.
1: Tom, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, too. And it's the year. It's, uh, it's happy Thanksgiving time, so happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Be safe out there.
5: All right. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. And with that, we're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV, our voices radio, 92one LPFM, Flint. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well.
3: and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.
0: Say, objection.
3: I object. I object to that, your honor.
0: Oh, hi, mom. What's up? Dana.
3: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
7: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Hollywood reporter, Don Hinckley, at the premiere of what is probably the most talked-about motion picture of all time, the story of the great love between the handsome Roman general and the Egyptian queen. We're hoping to interview the beautiful star of this epic. And, oh, I, I, I think we're in luck. Yes, yes, we are in luck. Here comes that great beauty now. Excuse me, would you like to say hello to your millions of fans?
0: My name, Jose Jimenez. <laughs> hello to your millions of fans.
7: Of course, uh, everyone here knows the name of your picture, but I'm sure you'd like to mention it again.
0: The name of my picture, is Gidget goes Egyptian?
7: <laughs> I always thought the uh, title of the picture was Cleopatra. Oh no
0: no no! Cleopatra is the name of our coming attraction.
7: <laughs> coming attraction. That's right. Well, that picture cost forty million dollars. That's nothing. I was cost a hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's not so much for a ticket. <laughs> You, do you mean that you're charging $100,000 for one ticket? Why, I couldn't afford to see that picture. Would you like a free pass? Yes, I would. That'll uh, be $10,000. How much did the picture actually cost to make?
0: Including lunches? Why, why should lunches be
7: so expensive?
0: Do you know what it costs to smuggle corned beef into Egypt? <laughs>
7: Costumes uh, must have cost you a fortune Oh, costumes, my goodness they... Costumes alone
0: cost 50 billion
7: dollars I imagine uh, Cleopatra's costume was the most
0: expensive No, one. there we saved money <laughs> Eight yards of saran wrap and some beads uh... did we needed for that. Didn't they uh, try to save money at all? Yes, we tried to save money at all For example, one time we had this thing, you know, that was going on in a beautiful alabaster hall. And we had 30,000 dancing girls running around. And we had 20,000 musician people playing golden harps. And we had 40,000 slave girls pouring wine.
7: Well, how did that save money? We used paper cups.
0: (laughs) Uh, That must've been the famous orgy scene? No, that was the famous coffee break. (laughs) That's fantastic we swung on a set (laughs) As a matter of fact, I gotta tell you one thing That the picture has a surprised ending So nobody will be seated during the last five hours
7: Well, it's obviously a very long movie But uh, do you plan to
0: have intermissions? Yes, one intermission Wednesday (laughs) You guys can take Wednesday off You mean the show lasts a whole week? Yes, if you see the cartoon. Cartoon? Yes, Ben-Hur. <laughs> Mickey Mouse plays Ben and Minnie plays her.
7: Exactly how long have you been uh, working on this picture?
0: Well, quite a while, because we had a delay one time. We had lay off on account of the noise. What noise? World War II. <laughs> We had those tiger tanks going there. We were straight. It was really terrible. And then it was these guys with the pointed helmets. Jose. <laughs> Maybe it was World War I, huh? Yes, sir.
7: <laughs> sir, let's talk about your co-star's salary. I understand it's an astronomical figure. She certainly has. <laughs>
0: I, you I, noticed that, huh? Yeah, I'm right? talking about I'm her glad salary. To see her obs- oh, her salary. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, you talk about what you want to talk about, and I'll talk about what I. Do. I understand that she makes eight.
7: Thousand dollars a day. Now that's more than most people isn't make in a year. Some,
0: isn't that something? Eight thousand dollars a day.
7: Yeah, it's a lot of but money. George. But is she really happy?
0: Boy, is she happy! <laughs> <laughs> you never heard such giggling in your life. It comes from that girl on payday, and you can hear it all the way across the street.
7: <laughs> but, Jose, yes. money doesn't buy happiness.
0: No, but for $8,000 a day, you could rent it.
7: (laughs) Now that you've mentioned your beautiful co-star, I wonder if you'd answer the question the whole world is asking.
0: I would be delighted to, as long as they don't ask it at once. Let them ask you one at a time. Let's start with India, if
7: you like, There's a lot of people (laughs) over there. The question is, Yes. Are you going to marry your co-star?
0: I will have to say at this time and you can quote me on this and I don't care if you quote me word for word and even the better. <laughs> I will marry the woman I love. You will? I always do. <laughs> I don't know what I could tell you about how much I love her. I will climb the top of the highest mountain. I would crawl on my little valley across all the desert and the hot desert, and I would go across the most ragging rivers for her. When will you see her next? Tonight, if it doesn't rain. I well, listen, you know, I got my good toga on. I don't want to spoil it.
7: Jose, what would you say was your biggest problem in the picture?
0: I would say my biggest problem in the picture was the asp. The uh, asp? Yes. You mean the snake? Yes, the snake asp, yeah. <laughs> you see, that is snake. How to come around and hug Cleopatra real tight and coil around her and come up and bite her right on the neck, you see? And it was my job to teach that asp how to do that. So so what's wrong with that? He got it right the first time. (laughs) I told him nobody likes a smart asp.
2: Sometimes it hits you in the back of the head Hurts so bad, don't want to get out of bed Hmm. Hurts so bad, don't want to get out of bed Sometimes it drops you right down to your knees Sometimes it drops you right down to your knees Down so low, it's got you begging to please Got you begging to please But when those days Come to light